Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Dr. Jordana Islam is an incredible advocate for many different things. She's the project manager at the Green Action Center, an instructor at the University of Winnipeg, and has been involved with the NDP as chairperson of the Status of Women, Gender Equity, and Gender Diversity Committee. I sat down with Dr. Jordana Islam to talk about what it was like teaching through COVID-19, breaking the cycle of trauma, and why she's fought for social equity nearly her entire life. Now, before we get started, a brief content warning for anyone sensitive to the topic. Jordana is a survivor of domestic violence and we do discuss some of her experiences, so discretion is advised. And now my conversation with Jordana Islam. for listening to Because and Effect. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined via Zoom, as we are with every interview these days, by Dr. Durdana Islam. She's the instructor at the University of Winnipeg. She's a project manager at the Green Action Center. She's Manitoba's NDP chairperson for the Status of Women, Gender Equity, and Gender Diversity Committee, and she's a parenting coach. Durdana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Nolan. It's, it, it's an honor. It's an honor. It's an honor to speak with you. Um, we've already had a brief conversation before we started recording, so I'm very excited for people to get to know you. Um, but before we sort of get into everything, you you have one of the most amazing bios and resumes I've ever seen. So you might be, you know, one of the most impressive people we've ever had on podcast. I don't want to, you know, hype you up too much, but. Um, Maybe before we get into everything that you're an expert on, let's just talk about the last two years. What what has COVID been like for you teaching at the University of Winnipeg and just with your family and everything? Like, how, how has these last two years been for you guys uh, just in general? Thank you so much, uh, Nolan, for that question. I, I would say that last two years, I spent a lot of time reflecting on myself and where I want to go and, and some of the goals and some of the things that I wanted to do. Uh, as a, like, I, I live uh, with my two kids. My daughter is 17 and my son is 11. So at the beginning of the lockdown, we would cook together and we would bake cupcakes and we'll just drop them in some friends' houses, like, you know, just to cheer people up. And at one point it was like, I also would not, I would be honest with that, but at one point I was in so much low energy because I was missing seeing friends and families and, you know, giving them hugs. Uh, it was it was hard on me and I could say that it was hard on my kids too. And I'm somebody who talks about my feelings with my kids, like with my friends as well. And I would say, you know what, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I wish this would be over soon. And even sharing those feelings, like, you know, I'm feeling sad. I am missing my friends. I'm missing my family. I would say those helped and a lot of journaling and a lot of reflecting on myself. And when we had the first Ramadan, uh, like without going to the mosque <clears throat> and eating, uh, like, you know, breaking our fast together as with family, friends and going to the mosque, that was hard. And that's mm -hmm. when my friend Nilifer uh, made a documentary, The Year We Fasted Alone. And it was really, really good. She's one of the amazing filmmakers I know and yeah so it was it was really good so she asked people from all over the world to send their 
uh, experience during Ramadan, I mean, and, and during COVID lockdowns, so people wow. from all over the world send those messages, and that's what she made the documentary of. And I would say one of the other things during COVID was, as you asked me the question about teaching, mm. it was hard teaching because I love teaching in the classroom mm-hmm. because I like to get to know my students. And some of the students, even I taught uh, four years ago, I still know them by their name. Some of them will email me to write references and, and I build that connection with my students. I just say that like meeting you in the classroom is not the end, this is just the beginning, right? And I would be there for you and happy for you to help in any way I can. So teaching during COVID time was very, very hard. Uh, to be honest, I, I had, like, I, it's not me and other people like me, all the teachers and everybody had hard time adjusting. So that was a learning curve for all of us, right? Yeah. How the Zoom works and how you're going to do and how you have the class participation in Zoom. And I would say my students were really nice and adjusting and um, they helped me. So it was, a, it was a two-way learning. That's something I always say that teaching mm-hmm. is a two-way learning. I learned from them, they learned from me. And I would say my recent course that I just finished teaching at the University of Winnipeg, it was human geography, um, people, place, and development. I had 50 students from, I think, 12 different countries. Oh, wow, yeah. Dubai, India, Bangladesh, like all over the world. Because in the class I asked, hey, so where are you physically located? Because many of them could not come to Winnipeg and start their course in person because because they were were not allowed to fly, right? Right. And some of them said, when we come to Winnipeg, can I meet you for coffee? I said, yeah, for sure. Uh, We can can definitely meet for coffee when you come here. So that was quite an experience for me. And I did another thing as a teacher was like, when I started my class, every single class, I would do a mental health check-in. I would ask my students, I would say that, how are we feeling this morning? And I would share how I was feeling. Right. Sometimes I would say, you know what, I'm feeling overwhelmed with all the work that I've been doing. And then my students, I said that if you're not, if you're not comfortable sharing it, talking about it, you can write it in the chat, right? So some of them would share, like, you know, this is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling sleepy. Like, you know, so I just said that acknowledge that feeling at the moment. This is what we're feeling. And now we're going to like being there at the moment, right? I wouldn't spend a lot of time. It's 50 students in the class, maybe less than a minute. But I would always start telling them how I was feeling. Like uh, if there was something, there was a death in the community, Bangladeshi community. And the next day I had the class and I told them I'm feeling very, very sad. There's a 19 years old girl in the community who passed away. So I was, the way I would say is that like connecting with people at a personal level when you decide to be vulnerable people get sent and people can connect with you in that level and my last course that i taught in winter so uh one of the students she started crying when i asked her how she was doing and she said she had a miscarriage so we all send love to her in that class and i sent her a personal email right and she said she thought she wouldn't be able to attend the class but she felt really good after attending the class because she felt well supported yeah so those are the things I would say that human connection and even doing those classes, I would sit down and say, you know what, how can I connect with my students at a level without meeting them? Because I said, this is a virtual classroom. And I would always say that this is a safe space. Mm-hmm. And whatever we discuss in the class is not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And no judgmental or nothing intended, right? So one of my students was uh, 
non-binary. And they said that it was really hard for them to come to friends and even many of the family members do not know about that. So <clears throat> I would say it was an interesting experience for sure during COVID time. But at the same time, I would say I learned so much and that really helped me with my personal growth, not in just uh, in so many different ways, like physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual level too. So I took that time to reflect on myself, how far I've come and yeah. where I want to go with my life. It speaks to your ability as an instructor and, and just as a, you know, empathetic human being that you can, even through the medium of Zoom, you can still have these intense and powerful and probably forever lasting connections with your, with your students. I, I, when we, when I started this podcast, it was always sitting down in person. So when, when the restrictions are all lifted, I'd love to sit down with you and, you know, have a coffee in person and, and look into your eyes in that way. But do you think you can still, I mean, you're, you're kind of living proof of it, but do you think you can still make that connection through a screen like that? Or, or did you find it difficult to kind of adjust into that mode first? Or, or what was that like when you first sort of, okay, we got to do everything by zoom now. What do you remember back when that first started? Yeah, <clears throat> definitely I do. And I, I would, first of all, I would really love to meet for a coffee with you know, and to meet you face to face and share a hug too. I love hugging. <laughs> for sure. I'm in. <clears throat> awesome. So we're going to do that. Um, so I would say <clears throat> even people having their video, like videos on was a struggle. Right. Sometimes I'm looking at the screen, all my students had their videos off. <laughs> And then I would say, you know what? If you're comfortable, switch your video on. And some, some of us took time, right? I would say two experiences here that was really powerful. One was, I was in BDI one day and they asked, right? Bridge drive in the ice cream yeah. place, right? So they asked you your name. So I said, Dudana Islam. So I saw three ladies there standing and talking. And one of the ladies came to me and said that, hey, you're my instructor in human geo class. And this is my name. And I said, wow, I know you by name, but I've never seen you. And I couldn't say that, you know, you're not comfortable. I said, I'm so happy to see you in person. And I said that I would have given you a hug if it wasn't COVID restriction. So it was great, like, you know, seeing somebody in person who, mm. who knows me through the class. And she said that I really enjoyed your class and I've learned so much and everything. So that makes you happy, right? I was, I was really I felt thankful that I heard those. <clears throat> and then there was another student, I would say, again, in my winter class, winter 2020 class, um, she had a very good perspective even the topics we would cover. And then she said, in the first class, she said, she switched the videos off. And I said that when we're doing presentation, I wanna see you like everybody. And if you're not comfortable with the videos on, I can have one-on-one -on -one presentation with you. Mm -hmm. So she said, Dodana, can you stay a little bit longer after the class? So when I opened the video, like when I was there, she said, she just switched on the video. And I'm like, wow, I'm glad that you felt comfortable. And she said that I'm a black woman and I don't have a lot of hair. My tooth is broken and there has been very few incidents when I go to a store and they don't stop me because they think I am stealing something there. Mm -hmm. It really, really broke my heart because she's a part of the class and not many folks, like not many of our colleagues has seen her. Mm -hmm. And I was so touched. I said, you're beautiful. You know that, right? And she had tears in her eyes. Mm -hmm. and, and even connecting with her and 
knowing the struggles that she's going through, which she felt comfortable sharing. And we had a 45 minutes conversation with her. And she was, she said that I never felt so comfortable in a class. And thanks for creating that space for me. So these are the things when I teach, these things really feeds my soul in so many different ways that I wouldn't get it in any other profession. Yeah. Well, I, it seems like you're built. It seems like you're built for teaching because even we were chatting for about half an hour before we started recording, and I was instantly put it. I was just like, "This this person's gonna be my best friend," you know. Like I immediately just felt this kinship and this friendship and this like vibe. You just you put out good vibes, but like maybe it speaks to something in our education system that that didn't used to be a priority, like connection and human interaction and vulnerability and community didn't really used to be a priority for, for education. It was just kind of show up, learn your stuff, you know, take the test and, and leave. Um, have you always made it a priority as a teacher to, to try to encourage that empathy and encourage those connections and encourage the vulnerability in your students? Or was that something that you learned throughout, throughout your career so far? Let me go back a little bit uh, to my family of origin. My parental great-grandfather, he was a school inspector at the time of British beer in Bangladesh. Cool. Like at that time, it was a subcontinent like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh was part of the same nation, right? Same, same country. And then my own aunt, Asina Zakaria, and my another aunt, uh, Fazilat Islam Ruby, and my another aunt, Ruksana Islam, they're all teachers. They're all school teachers. And uh, Hasina Zakaria, she, my, my aunt, my paternal aunt, she was a principal of a school in Chittagong where I'm from. And she was one of the best principals because her school did so well in so many years and with record marks of the students. So I have seen them, I have seen, I was raised by strong women. My mom is a physician and she became a physician. She was, a, she's a child specialist at a time in eighties where not many women would be in a field of being a physician. She went abroad, she went to Syria, she went to Singapore to study. And at that time, my dad would take care of us. And I was a little girl at that time, right? So I have seen those women who are very strong and breaking those cycles, right? So I grew up in that environment. So I would say that was instilling me, but I didn't, I knew it even when I was a little girl that I would be a teacher one day and I wanted to teach. So I started my career, as I said, at the age of 21 in Brack University, it was in the year 2000. And then I, I took initiative of knowing my students personally, even I think two days ago, I got a message in LinkedIn. So he was my student in the first year and he said that I've learned so much in your class and it was really hard to find you and I finally found mm -hmm. you and I'm married, I've got kids. So it really fills my heart with joy. And uh, when I started teaching in Canada um, in 2016, I think I started teaching in 2017 in, at University of Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. So that's something I... I, I I, I brought with me, right? The having that human connection. And one of the students, he was in his fourth year. He said, this is the first time in my total University of Winnipeg life, a teacher bothered to know my name and called me by my name. Oh, when I, I was at University of Manitoba and I, I remember going into a class, I was taking some, I don't remember, some British literature course or something or some old romantic poetry or something and I remember sitting in the front row and I was trying to engage and trying to really like get get active and like talk and and put you know put up my hand and answer questions and all this stuff and, and then at the end of the class the uh, professor said like oh thank thanks thanks Mark I really appreciated your 
your you know in, input today i was like he doesn't even know my name like it was just so disheartening and i, I and this is probably 10 years ago right and i still remember it because i wanted to do my best i wanted to like you know put it i wanted him to know that nolan bicknell was working hard and he's like oh thanks for thanks for your work today mark and i was like oh that just felt like such a gut punch you know and it's it's just i mean, it's it is what it is right but but i still remember it to this day right so how do how do you feel when now you are going to be the 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 inspiring person to the 19 20 year old who's just starting their career and they're going to look up to you and and see you know all the things that they could possibly be first of all i'm really sorry that you went through that experience <laughs> being called by a different name that is that is that is really that i would have felt uh, really bad about it right so i'm sorry that you went through that experience Again, I would go back um, to how in Bangladesh, again, in, in, in Bangladesh and Australia and some parts of the Europe, it's like, it's very hierarchical, right? The teacher mm -hmm. is here, you're here, right? Mm -hmm. And I always have problems, had problems with that structure. Uh, but when I came to North America, like I did my uh, PhD uh, from National Resources you know, Institute, University of Manitoba, and I had an amazing privilege to work with a supervisor. He's world known uh, for his work in resilience. And he's a very well-known scholar in the world. His name is Professor Fikrit Perkis, and he's a professor emeritus now. I saw in his lab how he would interact with students. We would sit together and have lunch together. We would share lunch and he would make tea for the students. So every time he would walk into my, to my office space, I would stand up and he'd say, Dana, why do you stand up? I said, that's how I was raised. When a teacher walks in, stand up to show respect. And Fikrit said, you don't have to do that for me anymore. And he would, even when I was going through some personal crisis um, during my PhD, he was there as a rock solid person. He was there as my dad. I would go to his room. I would cry hugging him. He was there to cheer me. And at one point he said to me, Dudana, your smile is very misleading because whenever you're sad, you smile. Whenever you're happy, you smile. You know, so, um, and, and that's what really shaped me. Because when I saw Fitbit, I learned so much from him. Like he knew my kids. And when my dad came to visit Winnipeg, he took my dad for lunch. When my mom came, he took my mom to lunch. Wow. And I'm like, he doesn't need to do all these right. things. And I was having friends who are doing PhD and their professors are like, you know, do these. They don't even bother to know what their situation is, what their mental health is. Because PhD is a, is a very, very stressful study because mm -hmm. you are contributing something very new to the literature, right? So I would say Fikret really influenced me the way I am as a teacher. And the question that you asked me, like how do I feel with this new generations? I feel extremely hopeful because the new generation are more conscious environmentally. Again, my other hat that I wear, I am the manager of climate action in Manitoba, the Green Action Center. And that's a job I wanted. I just joined recently in June and I work with amazing colleague and we are all leaving that life. And this is a job that not only pays my bill, it feeds my soul mm -hmm. because I can see how much difference we are making, maybe in a small scale, but we're gonna grow bigger, right? And, and I would say like in my class, when I say that this is how I live my life, it impresses many students right, even, even to make those changes. And I said that in the class, you're not only learning theory tests, you will learn so many things, you can decide how you're gonna live your life. And I always say that you vote with your money. 
Yeah. If you want to buy local, buy local. Help those farmers. When you go to superstore, do you fill those, make those connection uh, with your, uh, with the salesperson? You don't. I buy my meat and uh, meat from a local grocery store where the family runs stores. Every time I go, I ask, hey, how are you doing? How are your kids doing? It's that personal connection that we miss, right? Yeah. So I preach those things and I feel that these younger generations, they connect with that very well. Yeah. And I see they're very accepting. Like yeah. from people coming from different background, like uh, like despite of their race, sexual orientation, color, like we're all in the same class together. Like there was one student in my class who was homeless for many years. He went to 10 different foster homes, but he felt comfortable in my class to share that information. He said, I do three jobs to pay my bills. And he said, one point, nobody really wanted him in the foster homes because he was too naughty. So even for him, and I was teaching geography of place at that time, we talked about ethnicity, we talked about racism, and he opened up there. So yeah. I think those are the things that I feel is very, fits my soul as a yeah. teacher. Beautifully so, said. Yeah, and I'm very, very hopeful about our future. I'm very, very hopeful that these are the children, these are the future generation. I wouldn't say they're our future leaders, I would say they're our leaders now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. It's all about perspectives, too. We were talking about this before about, you know, being able to travel and see different perspectives and see different ways of living and ways of doing and, and stuff. And I, I feel like the next generation, because that maybe because of the Internet, because of their phones, they're exposed to so many different perspectives that they, they you know, where I grew up, it was very limited perspectives growing up. It was a small town and it was kind of, this is the way things are done and this is the way they've always been done. So that's the way we're going to continue doing things. Um, I, I feel like a lot of the work that you do is to try to expand as many perspectives as possible and get as many people from different perspectives having a voice at the table and having a seat at the table. Um, has that always been a part of your sort of mandate or is that a new thing as well in the last couple of years or have you always wanted to just get as many voices at the table as possible of that question i would say that <clears throat> as a young child um like growing up in chittagong i saw chittagong was a is a small town but now we have huge population there uh like i understand i can relate with you in that in that way how growing up in a small place because everybody knows everybody and yep. sometimes your business is everybody's business. Mm -hmm. So that's something I wasn't very happy about. And it's something that's, and there's a lot of gossip goes around in small town. Uh, and I'm not saying that, I, I'm not judging it. This is the way it is because everybody knows everybody and, and, and news travels so fast, mm -hmm. right? And, and if you're from a well-known family, the way my family was, my dad is an artist and he plays flute, classical flute, and he travels all over the world with his music. Um, and recently he got uh, the second highest civilian award, award in Bangladesh. Awesome. So next time when he comes to Winnipeg, I'm going to uh, arrange a concert. So I'll invite you, Nolan. Awesome. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So I understand that comes with small town and small town feeling. And I, as I said, the environment I was growing up, my dad would respect my mom 
and my all aunts, my uncles would respect, and my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, he had a lot of respect for women, right? Mm. So I grew up sharing my opinion on the table always, mm. right? This is what I feel. And my dad would say, even when we would go for traveling, we traveled a lot with my parents. So we'll sit down, we're going to India. My dad said, this is where we're going to go. And this is, I said, no, dad, let's go, this, let's do this. So he would always value the opinion, but not always following that because I was a kid. But what happened when I got married at the age of 23? I got married. It was a very arranged marriage. I only met him three times before I got married as well. It was my mom's best friend's uh, older sisters. Like she saw my mom growing up when my mom was a med school student. So they both wanted it. But I finished my undergrad at 21. I was teaching at Brack University. It was a capital in Dhaka. But this boy, my my ex-husband, lived in Chittagong. So when we first met, the first thing I asked, told him that I'm very ambitious. I want to go abroad for higher studies. Do you have any issues with that? And when I told my parents that I want to go abroad for higher studies, they always said, you need to get married first because that's the culture, right? Right. You need to get married. Your mom went abroad. I said, dad, my mom went abroad because you are that flexible and you have this broad mind. Not many men would do that. But my dad is like, no, you're going to find someone like that. So in my first meeting, I told him that, I, I want to study abroad, and will that be a barrier for you? Because he's established businessman in Chittagong. He said, no, 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 you can go. And then second thing, I told him that I've got asthma. Why would you marry somebody knowing that your kids might have asthma? Mm. So those are two things. I was extremely vulnerable. So after meeting me, and I said, you have options, right? And then after meeting me, he went to his mom, and he said that if I marry somebody, this would be the girl, because mm-hmm. she was very honest. She was very blunt, right? So after I got married, this is where things changed changed in my ex-husband's house we were living in a joint family with seven people there I was not allowed to put my opinions my ex-husband hated it Uh, you're not supposed to talk it's my dad it was extremely patriarchal right so boys are always in a higher level than the girls Mm -hmm. right and to me that was extremely troublesome yeah I was a very free-spirited person even growing up in my family but in that environment and, <clears throat> and the culture where I come from, as before the discussion, remember you and I were talking, does women have choices or they are told to do this way? Yeah. So I was, <clears throat> I was always told what to do. I was told that women do not have that loud voice. You have to talk slowly. When my dad is there, you don't sit down, you get up, right? And mm-hmm. then you always have to cover your hair. So I said, okay, I'll be a good Muslim wife. I don't have any problems with that. And there is expectation once you get married, Nobody would ask you in our culture that you really want to have kids. It's expected that you got married and you have to give kids to the in-laws family, right? So so at that point in time, I was married for 10 years. In Bangladesh, I stayed uh, for six years in my marriage. And then at one point, I just feeling that I felt that I cannot do this anymore. My daughter was born and I said, I'm going to apply for scholarship. So that's when I applied for scholarship. And I got scholarship in Australia with Asian Development Bank Scholarship. They paid everything for me. Wow. And my ex told me, if you get scholarship only, then you can go. So when I got this news, I called him. He was in his office. I started crying. I said, I got this scholarship and I want to go. My daughter was not even three years old at that time. She was two and a half. And I decided to go. So when I went there, before I went there, I told him that I'm going to wear hijab when I go there. So no man can look at me. No man can think that I'm good looking and you don't have to worry about it. 
So that was the first time I would cover my hair with uh, with with the part of our dress we call shalwar kameez and dupatta. So used things at dupatta. But then that's when I started wearing hijab when I was in Australia. Like wow. none of my colleagues, none of my friends in Australia has seen my hair. Yeah. Wow. So and I did really, but that Australian example was was again I could be me. Mm-hmm. because i was not influenced i could be me and i really loved that that i was being me i could i could i could share my opinion and i did a very good result i passed my masters with distinction and that's when he came with my daughter to visit me for my convocation and when i returned home i, I said i'm not staying in bangladesh i'm going to canada because we already have a permanent residence there i said either you come with me or you stay with your family i'm taking my, our girl and going there my daughter was four at that time and he was like he was very quiet and then he decided to come with me to canada so that was something really really nice of him that he was supportive wow. so when he came to canada with me we lived in toronto and that's where our son was born in 2009 and that's when i was in maternity leave i said i'm here in canada i want to study so that's when i was exploring to different universities for my phd and ufm really gave me a very good scholarship for me to come right um but my marriage was not in a good shape because mm. i thought when i come out of my like joint family things would get better he would mm. treat me nicely but things did not get better things became really really bad um yeah and then again i'm going to go back with that how your generation right there's mm. nobody in my family who went through divorce mm. none and i've always seen my aunts my mom like everybody always saying that uh like that was one of your question that you sent me earlier yeah. like what was the first thing that uh i don't remember the question <laughs> don't mind me first causes you care about yeah so when i was growing up like i would always say that you have to ask permission from your husband and even when i got married my dad said that he's your guardian and he didn't oh. sit right with me like why does he have to be my guardian like nobody i don't need anybody to be my guardian and even hearing that uh like using religion as a way of saying that women are women would be taken care of the husband you first live in your dad's family and then you get married you became a part of your husband's family and then when you get older your son takes care of you it never sat right with me i would always question that and i also did not like how you use religion as a way but then when i became adult i studied islam islam does not say that trust me islam right. does not say that right. islam is a very very progressive religion but the people use islam people use religion in a way to control women yeah mm-hmm. so when you said when we're having this conversation does women choose to no they are told to yeah if you don't do that you will be quote unquote the bad one you will be the rebel yeah the social pressure sort of utilized and wielded and sort of aimed at people to to get them to be controlled and to be to you know s- sit down be quiet listen you do what you're told all all these things is a really it's a dicey area to talk about because it's almost an illusion of choice it's saying like yeah you can choose to to go against society and go against the culture and go against your community but you're not going to be involved in that community if you choose to do something different right so is it really a choice when you're when the it's either you know do follow your heart and do what you want or lose your community and lose your family potentially right and and it's a hard thing for me to kind of 
understand in some ways because I have had the privilege of, ha- you know, be not having that choice or that, you know, I haven't had to make that decision. I, I you know what I mean? So um, have you have you given much thought about that societal pressure and when it comes to your students or, or when it comes to your kids, even letting them know that you do have a choice and you can, you will always have a choice and you will always be able to to stand up for what you believe in as opposed to, you know, give into the pressures of a community or of a society or of a religion or of a, or of a, you know, name the, name the, excuse me, name the, uh, um, organization that might might be trying to oppress have you have you given much thought about that i did that was a very good question i will share a one experience from my student then i'll share my personal experience first of all was i had a student in my class uh, she's from middle east and she's a very pretty woman but she would suffer from a lot of insecurity because she's big and i told her how beautiful she is and she said that i want to go for a surgery and all kind of stuff she has I think five kids, five daughters, like she, her husband always wanted to have a son, right? That, that kind of culture, right? So again, it's going back to the culture, right? And she is Muslim and she would always say, my husband is so nice, so nice. And I always felt there was something wrong with that because that is who I was. When I was living in Toronto, I had two uncles living there and my aunt, um, yeah, her name is um, Dora, like, her nickname is Dora. We used to call Adora Chachi. It's in Bengali, it calls aunt. It means aunt. So she's a counselor, settlement counselor. So when people would come to Canada as a permanent resident, she would counsel them, right? So she would tell them so many things. She would share a lot of stories. So at that time, I told her, I have a neighbor who has her daughter, like my daughter's age. My daughter's name is Shamila. And my son's age, she has got another son, my son's age. And she goes through a lot of abuse by her husband. And I said, is there any number, is there anything that I can share with her? So my aunt would give me a list of things. She said, you know, these are the numbers and you know what? This marriage is not gonna last because the more she's taking, it's gonna last. But the moment she stops taking this abuse, it's gonna end. Mm-hmm. And he, we would have this discussion in front of my ex-husband, right? He would be in the table. And then he would always always tell me that you say all these things, I'm sure Boratachi knows it's you. And I would say, no, I never shared that. So I had all those resources in, in my hand, but mm-hmm. I choose not to ex- access those resources with the fear that I don't want my daughter to be raised without a dad. And <clears throat> I didn't want that. So again, going back to the Norman, my parents would talk from Bangladesh and I would say, yeah, we're happy. And everybody in that, when I was living in Toronto, everybody knew we were a very happy couple. So pretending that I am happy, pretending that, but. The only thing I had was my voice, but my voice was numb. I was still wearing hijab. I was still praying five times, but whatever I did was never good enough. I was never pretty enough. I was never good enough. Like, and he would tell me a couple of times, I married you because you're a good student. I married you because you've got blue blood. You come from a very, very good family. I wanted the blood. And it made me feel very, very small. You're valuing so many things about my family, so many things about other things, but you're not valuing me as a person. Right. And it was really hard on me. And when I decided to come to Winnipeg in 2010, uh, with my two kids, my son was 10 months. My daughter was uh, five years at that time. He decided not to come with me. He came for a week and he was supposed to go back to Toronto and finish his degree and come back in two weeks. He came after three months. I didn't know, I didn't have a car at that time. My friend Tarek would take me to grocery. 
with my son, 10 months old. I didn't have any daycare. I would take him to the class with me. During the lunch break, I would breastfeed him, change his diaper. He would be playing on the floor in the class. Wow. And one time, my friend, he's a white guy, and he had his very young guy. He took a picture of me. He said, I went took back to my uh, girlfriend, and I said that this is a woman who's like a single mom. Her husband is in Toronto. She brings her son, and she's always smiling, and she's getting A pluses. And you complain about your life. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay, I'm in fine. So, so you know, and then when he came, I, I, put, I, I got it place in the daycare so my my ex-husband that started blaming me why did you need to do a phd my son has to go to daycare they're sacrificing so much for you like every single time it's it's making me feel guilty right you know maybe and i wouldn't put it on him when i look at the bigger picture he grew up in an environment where her mom didn't go to college his dad his mom didn't go to college and his dad uh was very very controlling so I would say going in that environment for him to come with his wife to Canada was a big step for him. Right. Yeah. So I would say going back to that, it's a lot of pressure from the society mm -hmm. that women goes through in our culture, where if you are a cycle breaker, you are the bad one. Even right. today, I'm divorced. Oh, yeah. And people still, even some of my aunts who literally raised me, told my mom, yes, her husband is, was abusive. She would, he would hit her, but that doesn't mean she has to break the relationship. And it's okay for husband to slap and, you know, sometimes do stuff and that's fine. He's, he's angry and he could do that. And my mom was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, that's uh, hard to hear. Yeah, it is. It is hard. And, and again, breaking that cycle, you become the target you become the bad one, but nobody sees you that you have the courage to break that cycle of trauma for so many years Yeah, that went behind you. And I tell my daughter that never feel that pressure that you have to stay with the guy or your partner just because you're married to him. If he's not treating you respectfully, if he's not treating you the way you want to be treated, you know that you can leave him and come to me. You don't have to worry about anything. So that's the improvement. That's the thing I have learned. That's the thing I have and that's the same way I'm raising my son, that if you have a partner, it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl. I will say that to, to mm -hmm. him and he smiles. Mm -hmm. I said that your partner will be your equal, not less, not more. Yes. Because in my marriage, I always felt I was less than. I was always less than. That's how I felt. I'm not saying he's making me feel that way. Like, look right. at my language. I'm just saying that yep. that's how I felt all the time. But with yeah. my mom and dad, I always felt that my mom wore the pants. So it doesn't matter what my dad said at the end of the day, whatever mom says happens, right? So, so it, was, it was hard. And then in Winnipeg, I would go to the next question that you had, if you, if you, um, if you want to ask that question or whichever way you want to go there. Let's, let's pause it for now. We'll, we'll go back to it in a second. I just want to mention when you talk, I mean, my mom and dad are probably both listening to this right now, but exact same thing. My mom is, she, like, once my girlfriend met my parents, she's like, you know, you come from a, you come from a women-led family, you know that, right? Like, and I was like, I guess, I never really thought about it before, but like, my grandma was the matriarch, she sort of ran the show, my mom is now the new matriarch, she runs the show, and Steph is just like, I, I really like your family, because it's just, all the women are running the show, and I was like, yeah, I guess, I, I never really thought about, 
I never really saw anything else. So that's just kind of how I was, how I was raised. But let's talk a little bit about the parallels of this to our current social climate and how sort of the status quo has been in Manitoba. Certain groups of people are sort of running things and other groups are expected to sort of sit down and be quiet and just let, you know, let, let the men run things. You ran for office in 2019. I think you would be a strong candidate moving forward continually. What is your perspective when it comes to the current shift in the status quo, when it comes to the same people who have been running things for a long time, and now we're starting to sort of wake up to the potential opportunities of having others with different backgrounds, different perspectives, and different ideas now coming to the forefront and wanting to challenge the uh, challenge the way things have always been, um, politically, socially, just in, in that in that realm. Can you speak to that a little bit? Wow, you're asking so many great questions. You're very good at what you do. That's for sure. I can tell you that. Well, thank you very much. Because I'm a social scientist and a participatory researcher. I evaluate a lot about stories, right? And mm. thank you for taking the time to meet me again. Um, I would say that from one example in a professional life, in a professional setting, I'm not going to name them or anything. I was in a room uh, with one of the persons who I was <clears throat> associated at that time. Uh, he's a white man and I was sitting there and he said that the world is made for me I'm a tall handsome white dude mm -hmm. and I just was so what did you just say he said you know I'm joking he knew that I'm a, I'm a strong person strong woman and then and he said that oh I'm sorry I didn't mean it in a different I said whatever way you mean it you don't say it and you're saying it in a room where a brown woman is sitting you have no idea how much discrimination we face in the world Mm -hmm. And he said, no, Dan, I'm really sorry. I said, you better be. So one professional example. And then I would say that politics is still an area where white older men dominate. Mm -hmm. It's not easy for a person, especially from BIPOC, right, to come and, and create the path. If you look at the history of Manitoba, as I said, in the 143 years, I would say at that time it was 141 years in 2019, we elected first <clears throat> three black MLAs and NDP elected two, one non-binary is Omar Saguara. And they are the only person in the entire Canada who holds an office who's non-binary. If you look at that, how behind we are. We are in Canada, we say we're very progressive. Are we really progressive? Jamie Moses and Audrey, or they're the three of them were the first ones. And if I go back again with where I'm coming from, I'm a brown woman, a brown Muslim woman, right? 143 years, there has been none Muslim, forget about men or women, ever elected in the legislature. You're talking about Islamophobia. You're talking about all these things Muslim are facing in Canada. What are we doing about it? Just having seminars and when somebody dies, calling some Muslim leader. I work very closely with Shaina. So the Ganti Shaina is, is a role model. She is the uh, voluntary executive director of ISA, Islamic Social Service Association. So every single time there is something she's called and she said, it's not going to stop. Every single time Marcia Marcuse interviews her, she said, it's going to happen again. So this time she was called again. She said, it is a systematic change that needs to happen. Yeah. 
<clears throat> and you're not electing somebody, a Muslim woman is Muslim man, you're not electing them. And you don't want to know what background we have. You're just putting, you're a Muslim, you're a terrorist. We're not saying that to a white man. We don't pose a white man if something, if they do something wrong, we don't say that that's a terrorist. But if somebody is Muslim, the first thing you do that, he's a, she is a terrorist. Why is that? Mm -hmm. And these kind of things really, really makes me angry. Mm -hmm. That you haven't lived my life. You haven't lived my life and you're trying to make policies about me. And that is one of the reasons when Wap Kinu was running for office, he came knocking at my door. I was an NDP member and he said that, what do you want to see change? And I said, I want people who looks like me, who speaks like me, in the table where decisions are being made. Mm -hmm. I sold myself within a couple of seconds. Wab said, can I come inside? So Wab, Wab came inside um, and then he asked me, what is your story? And I said, I'm a woman who came out of a domestic violence situation. I stayed in a shelter with my two kids. I finished my PhD, now I'm teaching. And this is what it is. And we don't have support. We are mm -hmm. here as a first generation immigrant leaving our abusive partner and then living in a shelter that does not cater to our needs. I eat halal. There was nothing halal food there. Right. And then you want us to leave that and you're saying you've got lots of support. There's no support. Because the trauma that we go through living our abusive partners, you're not giving that support. You don't know how our culture is. Yeah. Having a social worker who does not even know what I was going through. I was just a number to that shelter. Do I really want another woman? Like I counsel a lot of women in our community who goes through domestic violence. I cannot push them, but I just tell them, these are the resources I can help you when you're ready. Mm -hmm. So my thing is that we are creating a culture. We're saying that we're progressive. There's no way, zero tolerance for domestic violence. But what are you going to do for this woman of color who are first generation immigrants? They don't have any family here. What are you doing to support them? Do you have a counselor? Like I have a woman who I went on counsel. She speaks Gujarati. And I said, I called five people just to find out a counselor who speaks Gujarati. Why does it have to be so difficult? Yeah. Well, yeah, like having more diverse experiences sitting around the table is going to lead to better decisions. It's weird to me that we have not figured that out collectively as a as a country, that if you have the same type of person who's lived the same life and you just have 12 of those guys sitting around the table making the decisions, there's going to be 90% of the of the country and of the population that isn't represented and isn't heard and isn't listened to and therefore the the decisions are going to be objectively worse so how can we get people to understand that diversity is a strength that's and and that's not just a you know that's not just a, a buzzword that's not just a thing that people say to try to make canada seem better but true diversity and, and actually having multi multitude of voices at the table is going to make for better decisions just like full stop there's no there's no debate about it but why do people think why do we keep voting in the same the status quo if, if, like why haven't people realized that yet how can we how can we make people realize that true diversity is is actually stronger than than having this homogenous uh representation that's a very good question as i said i ran for office in 2019 i was the first bangladeshi person ever who ran for a provincial office like political office in in manitoba wow um yeah <laughs> and 
even people from my community wanted to stop me from running and they're men maybe they wanted to run and somehow they couldn't do it and they didn't want a woman to run and I didn't get as much support I was hoping from my community yes there were people who helped me definitely and I don't want to I'm very thankful for that who helped me with their time with their money with their support and moral encouragement Mm -hmm. uh when I ran for office Nehani Fontaine she's like a role model for me she said Dardana you know that you're gonna face a lot of racism at the door and I said yeah I can handle this and my my um campaign manager she's also a white woman right so the first day when I went knocking at the door my daughter was 15 at that time she went knocking at the door and this is white man coming at the door and he was in a happy smile the moment she said that I'm asking for vote for this NDP candidate Dardana Islam he just didn't say anything, just slammed the door in her face. So she came and she hugged me. She was in tears. I said, I said, Shamila, this is not about you. This is the man. And it shows how he is as a person. Don't take it personally. But one day I had three guys being behaving with me so bad. And I called my campaign manager. I was, I was crying. And she said that, Dana, that's why we need people like you elected so that people see yeah. it. One white man asked me, what do you have to bring on the table? And I said, I have a PhD in natural resources and environmental management. I did a master's in environmental management and development from Australia. I have another MBA that's mm-hmm. from a Canadian university that I did uh, off campus in Bangladesh. And I have my first degree in computer science. He looked at me, he said, wow, you're way more educated than many of us. And that really shocked me because what is that supposed to mean? That a brown Muslim woman with the last name Islam cannot be educated. And everybody thought Islam means religion. I said, Islam is a very common last name in my country. Nobody asks me those questions. You're just assuming that mm-hmm. just because Durdana Islam, she is a religious uh, right. I don't know, because you you relate Islam with a very negative connotation. You're a terrorist. But ask me those questions. Ask me what my plans are. Ask me what I'm going to do when I get elected. So yeah. you're assuming all these things. And the worst racist experience that I had, I have a friend whose name is Jody. She was a PhD student at that time in University of Waterloo. I just called Jody. Jody is a family. I said, Jody, I need your help with the kids. She just flew and she stayed, she just came with one ticket. She didn't even buy the return ticket. She said, they're done, I'll be there. So one day I didn't have my volunteer to come with me door knocking. And I said, Jody, do you want to come with me? Jody said, no, I'll help you in the back. I said, no, Jody, come with me. Shamala doesn't want to go. My, my daughter came with me and she person at the time. So when I went with her, again, it's a very, very, I would say the experience, every time I talk about the experience, I, I have different realizations. So uh, the last time we talked about this experience was in a was in a in an online forum where we had to talk about Asian hate, right? Mm. And I shared that experience. So for me, I'm Asian. I'm a brown woman. I'm Muslim, woman of color. So there are four ways you can discriminate me. So when I went there, this was a very high class neighbor, like. Uh, apartment building so I went there with Jody. Jody is a black woman and I knocked the door so this lady first thing she opened the door it's a white lady she said how did you come inside and I said as a candidate I have the right to come inside and and talk to you she said I don't want to bother by you so she slammed the door I said okay thank you thanks for your time so I didn't even give her the flyers or anything and then I spoke with the lady who's just opposite to her door and this lady said yeah I've always voted NDP and I really like what you have to do your policies and stuff 
So great. And then I started walking because it was a long corridor. And suddenly Jody looked at me. Oh my God, I don't believe this. Jody said to me, I said, what? I looked at there. Uh, this lady came out and she put towel on her door so that we cannot put any fires and stuff. And she had a disinfectant spray in her hand. She put it in front of her door, looking at both of us, like where we stood. And also she bothered to come in front of her neighbor's door and spray the disinfectant spray there to make sure as if we were some kind of insects, we were some kind of things that you hate, right? And the first thing Jody said, I didn't want to come with you this reason. And I hugged Jody. I said, Jody, please do not say that. It has nothing to do with you. I called my campaign manager. I said, I cannot do this today. And I just hugged her. I had tears in my eyes. She had tears. And I came walking and I had to do this. As I said, I do a lot of work on myself. I came in front of that woman's door. And I said, I wish nothing but peace to you. That's the exact sentence I said to her. I came back home. I wrote in my journal and that's exactly what I told her. I wish nothing but peace to you. And that is the experience I shared with Uzoma, I shared with Mehani, I shared with Wab. First of all, I'm very sorry you both went through that. That's horrendous. Um, Thank you. Yeah, that's disgusting and brutal. Yeah, seeing a lot of the stuff, it reminds me of... um, I play on a volleyball team almost with all women on it. And right when the the Me Too movement was happening, we went out for drinks after a volleyball game. And we were just kind of, you know, discussing things randomly, talking at the table. And uh, a light bulb kind of went off because six or seven of my teammates, of the women on my team, every single one had a story about being sexually harassed or assaulted or something on the bus, at a club, at school, wherever. And a light bulb went off in my head because I was like, oh, this is 100% of the people go through this. And I think think it's the same for people of color that 100% of people have either one or multiple stories of just (laughs) like, it's almost beyond parody, like how, how ridiculous of a, of a, experience that is of someone with a with some sort of spray like what could that person have gone through to think that that is the appropriate response to another human being and um yeah i think a lot of people still don't understand like because you hear the argument a lot of like oh you know canada's not racist we don't have that problem here we we're not we don't we're not like the states we're, we don't have that issue here but 100 percent of people have a horrifying story like that and like i said i'm sorry you went through that but how do we get people to understand that this is not this is not happening in a vacuum like this is a this is a common experience for 100 percent of women 100 percent of people of color how, how do we get people who don't who don't think that there's a problem to realize we have a serious problem that needs to be discussed and needs to be sort of like shone, a light needs to be shined on on these prejudices and 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 called out for what they are like how do we how do we let people know that this is i mean aside from just telling your story and thank you for doing that but 
how how do we get the average person to understand that this isn't this isn't just south of the border like this is a canadian problem it's a manitoban problem and we need to uh, we need to acknowledge it and, and and approach it and solve it how do we do that that's a very good question um i would first say that i don't know if you know aware of that winnipeg is one of the most racist cities in canada there was that McLean's article that that had that on the front, I think front cover, maybe Winnipeg's yeah. most racist city. And and the response to that that article was like, no, it's not. No, we're not. And it's like, OK, that's one response you could have. Or you could say, like, why are they writing this? Like, let's take a let's take a step back. Let's remove ourselves from the equation. Let's let's really analyze this and think about it. Like, yeah, but, but go on. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, 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 it's, it's, it's all good. So um, that's when a man named Carl Sire, I don't know if you have taught, known about him, he writes Strangers Connection. So when I was running for office, I knocked at his door and he said, I write a blog of Strangers Connection and would you be willing to be my guest? And I said, what is this about? He said, I meet a stranger for coffee and I write the stories. And he's a very handsome white man. And I'm like, wow, this is interesting. So after that, we became friends in Facebook and Instagram. So one year passed and nothing happened. So during COVID, he and I connected. So I was his first stranger who he did not meet in person for coffee, who did it via Zoom. So I think I was his 63rd stranger. And uh, I spoke with him for a couple of hours. And at one point when I was sharing my story of what I went through, he said that he had, he was trying to, he was trying all his strength to stop shedding tears because it was so hard. Um, that's a blog he writes. And then when he said that I'm going to publish it, he sent me the rough copy. And I said, yeah, it looks great. <laughs> he wrote really well. And I told my daughter, do you want to read it? My daughter said, I don't want to read it. I don't want to be defined by somebody who lived in shelter with her mom. I don't want to be defined in that way and I choose not to read it. And she's 17. She said, I don't want any of my friends to know what we went through. And I said, you know, Shamila, this is our story and I own it. And then she said, mom, I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. And I loved her maturity. So the day when Carl said that I have published it, I went for a long walk and I was almost having a panic attack mm -hmm. because my story is not just my story now. Mm -hmm. My story is now open to public and you have no idea. Like Carl has, I think, more than 6,000 followers in his blog. Mm -hmm. Many of my students read that. Many of the people in my community read that. Oh my God, I didn't know that you went through this. I didn't know that. I had no idea. This is what it is, right? So I decided to be vulnerable. Right. So the reason why I'm sharing this with you is we need to have this discussion. We need to have this discussion in the personal level. You talk to your neighbor, you talk to people, you know, you talk to white people you because white supremacy is not just happened one day. You being a white man, I'm not saying that you are doing it intentionally. That's in your gene. That's coming up generation, generations and generations. The way you treat black people with Black Lives Matter. Why? Because you've seen them, oh, that's, that's who is there to serve me. But that's not what it is right now. You have seen the movement of Black Lives Matter where so many people came. This kind of movement happens and then it stops. It phases away. That's not what I want. People need to talk about it. The way patriarchy comes from generations to generations to generations. Even I said that my ex, I'm not blaming it on him. This is how he grew up. He grew up seeing his dad abusing his mom, even physically. So for him, it was okay to slap me in front of my four years old and choking me. And those things, I've never seen that 
in my entire life. So when my dad came to visit me in 2012, my daughter, who was six years then, uh, she went and sat with my dad and said, Grandpa, do you ever hit grandma when you were angry? To my dad, that was a huge sign. My parents had no idea that I go through this kind of abuse. And my dad said, why did you decide to have kids with him? And why didn't you come to me? Because I was the one who got you married with this guy. So again, it's not that I chose not to say, I chose to make sure, I wanted to make sure that I don't go through that stigma as being a divorced and my kids grow up without a dad because that's how I grew up, right? And I am still the one person in the entire family who went for PhD, who's a divorced, who ran for office, who wears Western clothes. And that many of us, many of my community members, community friends, criticizes me and makes fun of me. And I said that if you don't like what I'm wearing, look elsewhere. It took a lot of time for me to love my body uh, because I was always told I was not pretty enough. I was not good enough. And you, it takes a toll on you, Nolan. It takes a, like many years of therapy, many years of self-work has brought me where I am. I'm not gonna let someone else tell me how to dress up. I'm not gonna let someone else because I know I'm a kind person. I know who I am and I stand true to my values. So I would say having those conversations with your neighbors, with people, your white friends, and then even calling them what they are, saying that, you know what, that was a racist comment. Don't be scared to put them in right place and say that I'm not okay with you talking to me like that. Again, coming from, I would go back to BIPOC. The communities where we grew up, you don't talk back. That is disrespectful. If somebody says bad things to you, if it's an elder, you don't say anything. And that's the same teaching you get in indigenous communities. I worked in indigenous communities and I said, wow, these are the values I grew up respecting your elders, living in, in, in a joint family, sharing your food. There was so many things that similar and I could connect. Like there was this woman who never came to, came to Winnipeg living in Garden Hill. So I was wearing a nose pin. I was married at that time. She touched my nose pin. She said, what is this? I said, this is a sign of married woman. Mm. And, and the first thing I took out when I went through my separation, I took out my nose pain. I don't want that. It was just a way of rebelling myself, right? That I am refusing to be a part of that. So what I'm trying to say is that having those conversations, even having those tough conversations is important on the table. And then organization, all government, non-government, every single organization should have a training on diversity and equity everybody should be called there sitting on the table so that do you really want to treat somebody treat somebody the way you want it to be treated Mm -hmm. a white man would never be facing all those racism at the door the way a woman of color would face Mm -hmm. why we are saying human when you cut your hand you will have the same color of your blood as mine Mm -hmm. so why are we putting them in different sectors and also i would say that your generations, like there's huge, very good training that happens in the school. That's why I said newer generations are not racist. Younger men who's met me at the door said that you're doing a very courageous thing. But that is the older folks, the last generation that they have all this. I'm not saying everybody's bad, please do not get me wrong. And I have faced racism by white women and also white men. So I wouldn't say it's all white male, it's not like that. So having those conversation in the table, those are uncomfortable conversation, it's very important. And then second thing is that naming them what they are. Don't be shy to tell your friend or whoever it is that's saying something that puts you down, say that, you know what, that is racism. That, that was a very racist comment. 
So teaching our kids, teaching us, like even talking to us, you need to stand up for yourself. Mm -hmm. Women has to fight to get space in those tables. And me, I have to fight three times harder Mm -hmm. because I have to compete against all the men. Mm-hmm. And when a woman runs for office, I am a single parent. I've got two kids to take care of. And you put full in when you run for office. Mm-hmm. And when you don't win, I went through a phase of extreme depression. And I'm not shy about that. I am not ashamed of that because you put everything in there. Yeah, and yeah, I, I do you want a woman to go through this? Do you want somebody to go through that? Because a man has all the support they need. Yeah. Their wife is there. Like, I'm just, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's easier, easier for men, but I would say it's way easier if you compare a white man running for office compared to a BIPOC person, BIPOC yeah. woman. No, yeah, you're completely right. I think what, what's interesting and what I've only learned sort of somewhat recently is that vulnerability equals strength and it leads to more strength. I, I think I was kind of raised, you know, playing a lot of sports if you showed weakness or if you showed vulnerability, which were often equated, it was like, that was frowned upon. Do not show weakness. Do not show, you know, don't, don't do anything like that. But my Stephanie, my partner has helped me really realize and understand that when you truly show vulnerability and truly um, open yourself up and, and sort of lay your, lay yourself bare, um, there's nothing more empowering and nothing more strengthening than that. Um, and it seems like you've learned that probably dozens, if not hundreds of times over. Um, I know we only have about 10 minutes left before your next meeting. So I want to switch to the, um, to the just because segment, but I first want to just say thank you for, for, for that vulnerability. I, I feel like the best interviews and the best conversations are when, when there's, honesty, vulnerability, and, and, and just, you know, being able to, to open yourself up like that. So thank you very much for sharing everything you've shared so far. I, th- I feel like we could talk for hours and, 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 and still keep going on, on a podcast, but I know you have to be somewhere. Uh, so thank you, Jordana. That, this, this thank is you, Nolan, for giving me that space. I'll just grab no, something. No problem. For sure. a second, I, uh, I keep this in my bedside table and I would I would read it before we finish. That would be the last quote I want to read. Okay, sounds good. All right, well, let's do the just because segment, and then and then I'll let you go. But thank you so so much for doing this podcast. I, I really thank think you it's so gonna, much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I think it's going to open some eyes and and just maybe start some conversations. Like that's what you were talking about before, right? Like that's kind of step one. First, you have to recognize and acknowledge that okay, the, these these things exist. So let's talk about how it makes us feel, and 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 in a vulnerable and honest and truthful way. Um, so yeah, thank you for inspiring that. I hope it inspires our listeners to, uh, to, to start some conversations. Uh, so yeah, yeah, welcome. thank you. So we, we talked a little bit about it, but question one of the, of the next segment is what is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? I would say poverty because I, I was raised in Bangladesh and I come from a very well-off family. I never struggled with food or anything, but in the streets, when you, when you go out, you'll see so many people begging, like even kids, um, even uh, moms asking for money to feed their kids. That really shook me. And then my mom, as I said, she's a physician, child specialist. And she would say that she would have patient coming to her 
who would not buy food to buy medicine for their kids. And my mom said, I will pay to them because in Bangladesh, the culture is you need to pay to see a doctor, you need to pay to buy medicine. We don't have insurance in the system. And that's why like my parents live a very humble, simple life. And that's what my mom said that I have decided to live this life because I wanted to help others. And my mom is, I'm very proud of the work she does. Uh, she started uh, building a hospital, Chittagong Shishu Hospital, that is for the hospital for children, especially poor kids, where they can come and get medication and everything wow. for free. And now I think they employ, I think they have 5,000 employees and, and they have a medical school, they have a nursing station. And my mom is, my mom is a role model for many, many people, many women there and many men there too. She's a superhero. She's a superhero. <laughs> she's a superhero. She is, she's amazing. She so is amazing. Awesome. She cool. inspires many people. So that's what I would say. Poverty was the first thing that For I sure. saw. And I had difficulties seeing that inequality in the society. Yeah, definitely. And it's still prevalent today, which is sort of the difficult thing. Yeah. Like even, even if you look at food security, right? Food insecurity is a big thing among poor people. And when I started working with indigenous communities here, and very food insecure. The first question I had is that Canada is a very, very rich country. And these are the indigenous people. This is their land. And with colonialization, whatever, what did we do? Like even people, when, in the, when immigrants come, they look at people like First Nation people, indigenous people in downtown, and they have a very bad stigmatized thing about them, but they don't realize that we don't realize, I wouldn't say they, we don't realize how much generational trauma these people went through. And when I went and saw this food insecurity in these communities and my PhD research on looking at fisheries and food insecurity, and I, I realized that this is so wrong. We have the hydro that's coming from Shoal Lake, First Nation. Like, and these are the people, some of the people are struggling for clean water. So isn't it same thing? Colonizers are not here. But what are we doing? Canadian system, we're still doing that. Yeah. So poverty is still prevalent in Canada, Manitoba right now. When I wanted to do research, I said, oh, my God, I did a course on food security. I said, oh, my God, this is terrible. Like food insecurity exists in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And then I said, I want to do my research on First Nations and food security. So that's how I would say related like I poverty and then how food insecure those poor household was. And then I brought that when I studied this. I'm like, wow, this is this, this just blew my mind. Yeah, and and the thing is, it's 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 in our backyard. Like, if, are you proud to be Canadian? Because there are Canadian brothers and sisters that are not living the the first world, you know, experience that we are, and and we need to acknowledge that, and we need to focus on that problem because it's solvable. It's not like these aren't solvable problems. We have the resources, we have the time, we have the money. We just have to choose to solve the problems, and the people in charge need to make that a priority. And it's like it's mind boggling that it hasn't been solved when it's clearly solvable. Yeah. Like I will, I will share one recent experience. My friend Neil invited me to join him with Bear Clan. Mm -hmm. So I went one Friday and trust me, the first person when we were giving food, I couldn't stop but shed tears. Three, four people, because some of the people, some of the folks wait when Bear Clan is going to come and deliver food. And the way the volunteers were hugging them said, my brothers, my sisters, it really, I was like, oh my God, I'm living in the same city. I yeah. live in a, I live in Waverly. It's, it's one of the richest neighborhoods, but in South Point. But then my question is, why don't I see that? And I said, when my daughter becomes 18, I told her, you're going to come with me and go for a walk with Berkland. And I said, we're going to make food and donate. And there were people who said, oh, you're going, I'm going to buy you 50 sandwiches from McDonald's. I have seen how, how people are friendly in Manitoba, but that's why we're friendly. And how many people would stop their parents and say, you're doing an amazing job. That was my first time going and I have committed myself. I'm going to go on a regular basis. So 
poverty is very much prevalent in this city right now. We just don't yeah. see it or we choose not to see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that, yeah, exactly. Well said. Um, question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all, you could just snap your fingers and something would happen. What's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Whatever, if it's social justice or whatever cause you want to choose. I would say I would eradicate child poverty. Because when you're giving these opportunities to a child, they can go anywhere. Like they don't have to limit anything. I, I would say that would be the first thing. And then I would say uh, injustice again, yeah. again, uh, uh, vulnerable communities and also racially uh, like BIPOC communities. Yeah. Well, we're at least we're going in the right direction. You know, like we're on the right side of history. We are fighting for what's right and get, we will get there eventually. It's just frustrating. You know, I, I haven't been sort of conscious of the struggle for that long, you know, as a younger, youngish person, that's just starting to focus on, on the political side of things. But like, I wish it would be faster and I wish we could just get there, but it, I know, I understand it's going to be a lifelong, you know, battle and a lifelong conversation, a lifelong struggle and a lifelong, you know, experience. So, but we'll get there eventually for sure. Um, question. I love, I love that. I love that optimism in your voice. That's why I said <laughs> our younger generations gives me, give me hope. When I was little, I was, I was little, when I was younger, I wasn't, I was always kind of pessimistic and always kind of like, oh, woe is me. Oh, the world is so crappy, blah, blah. It doesn't matter what we do. A little bit nihilistic. And only since working at the Winnipeg Foundation and speaking with people like you and starting this podcast and, and, and interviewing people who are literally just the best making the world a better place have I become more of an optimist. So that wasn't always who I was, but I, I'm glad that it's starting to become who I am uh, when it comes to staying positive while being surrounded by, <laughs> you know, the oceans on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. How, how you're saying that, how you grow. Right. And that right. is amazing. That yeah. really fills my heart with joy <laughs> seeing you, you know, having your experience and how you're growing spiritually yeah. and inside. Right? It's a lifelong, it's a, it's going to be a lifelong, you know, path that we're walking, but yeah, thank, thanks for, thanks for helping educate and, and, and help me on my path. I appreciate it. Um, question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your cause? Um, we talked a lot about stigma and we talked a lot about, you know, things like that, but maybe just quickly, what, what would you say is, oh, I think you're muted. Great. Uh, oh, I go. would say the stigma that, that I would, I would talk about the indigenous communities that, you know what, they're just sitting there and, and not paying taxes and they're, they're just um, like, you know, using all our resources. And that is the biggest stigma when it comes to working with indigenous communities. And that needs to change. Again, we need to have those conversations and with uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, the way they're treated. And like, you know, it really, really breaks my heart how things, uh, and then, I, as I said, even in a personal level, like I would say that students who are in high school, if you're 18 plus, they should be going with Bear Clan and go for a walk and see how that, I have seen students who, who's going in med school, she, he's there. I'm like, wow, it really pleases my heart to see you coming. He said, this is something that really makes me happy, right? So having those, like not just material things, right? Like buying brand stuff and everything. And another stigma I would say that's related with my personal experience is you're a divorcee. That means you're somebody who's, who is the bad one. Mm -hmm. That is really a stigma, especially coming from minority communities, because 
I, I tell people, I tell it very, very proudly. I am divorcee and I'm a survivor of domestic violence and I raised my kids by myself. I have a PhD. And what I want to say is that that is another stigma that we need to fight, that just because you are a divorcee, that doesn't make you a bad person. My ex is not a bad person. We just did not match. We just did not get along. If he was married to a very traditional woman, he is married now. He has a kid. He moved on. Uh, maybe he's in a happier place right now. We don't have a talking communication or anything. But what I'm saying is that just because I was not a good partner to him does not make me a bad person and doesn't make me a bad person either. So stigma around women being divorcee is a big thing. And I wouldn't say that it's only in our culture. There's some white culture as well, where you're very conservative. As you said, you're from Steinbach, right? Like it's, it's very common to have kids. And, and I think stigma about women's right that woman needs to be told what to happen. That's a big thing that I want to fight against. Yeah. You're a superhero too. Your mom is a superhero and you're a superhero. <laughs> oh my God. You're saying so many kind things to me. I'm kind, I don't know how to react. As I said, I'm not good with getting compliments. <laughs> well, we share that as well. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, question four, what's a, what's a victory that you're personally or professionally, a victory either recently or in the past that you're proud of? I mean, you have so many. You, there, there's about a thousand we've already talked about, but what's what's one that pops into your mind right now? I would say the recent one was January. I bought an electric car and Ooh. I was very proud of myself because my, my daughter was learning how to drive. She has a license now. And I said, you'll be driving using an electric car so that there's zero emission. And I surprised my kids. It's January 4th. I bought it. And that really goes with the values I have. Um, and I, if I go back in 2019, I would say running for office was a big victory because I was able to show the path and I was able to encourage many of the younger generations from my Bangladeshi community and other communities likewise. So that was, yes, I did not win, but the learning experience that I had was a huge curve like it was just a curve like that that I had no idea like after sharing my racism things like all the things I faced now MVP is gonna have I told them that the managers should have a training on how to deal with these things and there should be counselor because mm -hmm. you don't you cannot put a candidate in that situations and not having that support so great those point. things are changing great yeah. point yeah I love that very good uh question five what's the best advice you've ever been given best piece of advice you've ever been given Oh, that's, that's a tough one. We've had so many advices. I would say one thing my dad used to always tell me is that forgive people. Uh, even they do wrong because they're hurt. That's why they're hurting you. Uh, I was able to forgive my ex. That was a lot of work that I had to do on my part. I was able to forgive many of the people who decided to believe his lies. And I was able to forgive um, people who hurt me. I still am. And I, I would say that I do it because I don't want to carry that burden with me. I just want to forgive for myself and then wish them best and then move forward. Another advice my mom gave me, as I said, my mom is, is highly involved with social work and helping people. She said that when you help people, do not expect anything in return. Just do it from your heart. And in Islam, it says that, and, and again, I'm going to say this from the Quran, it says that if you help someone with your right hand, your left hand should not know. Mm. It is that, that way. But if you are doing something and bragging about it, all your blessing that you're supposed to get from Allah, you don't get it because you're bragging about the good that you did. Yeah. Similar to the Jewish faith as well. They're not, you're not allowed to make a donation and attach your name to it. And I've always loved that. I think that's so, especially today with, you know, in the social media age of people being like, look what I did. I just bought a, you know, a person experience homelessness, a sandwich. And then you post it on Instagram. It's like, what is, the, it just feels 
icky, you know, like, is that really what we want to be encouraging? But I love that. That's, that's a great, great. I, I love the, that you shared with me this. I didn't know that about this Jewish religion. Mm. And also I would say that my experience with Bear Clan, I, I, I have not shared it with anybody because I feel that's very, very personal. But the reason why I wanted to share this in this podcast is we were talking about poverty. For sure. And for I sure. really, through this, I really wanted to give the message out there that if you're 18 plus, go and do it. You will learn so many things about, I've seen young, beautiful women into drugs and she doesn't have food. So she was waiting for Bear Clan to go. And it really broke my heart because I'm a mom. I have a 17 years old, right? How much trauma you have to go through to be in that place. Yeah. I was not judging. Please do not get me wrong. No, of course. Yeah. Not judging. I was just, we were just doing our part. Whatever small part it was, you were giving a hungry person yeah. some food. Yeah. And one person we were offering sandwich, she said, he said that, I am filled. Give it to someone else who's more hungry than me. It brought tears in my eyes. How many of us can do that? We have everything we need. We have more. Mm-hmm. We can buy whatever we want. But can we really share that sandwich when you're hungry and you know someone else is hungrier than you? Yeah. How many people can do that? Yeah. Exactly. Very well said. Uh, question six. What advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you can go back in time and talk to her right now? Jordana, don't let a man tell you what to do. <laughs> That's a good one. Do, do what you believe is right, because that's what I did. I told I let my ex treat me the way he did. I let my ex dictate me. And I think that was, but I learned from that experience that I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Have you heard the, uh, ex- Say, don't let anyone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't let, yeah. Good men there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, I don't want to offend all the men out there because no, I'm single. Sure. I'm still looking for somebody. I'm just joking. <laughs> Well, that's t- that's tough as a mom too, because like you want to you want to teach your kids, hey, don't let anyone tell you what to do, except for me. You listen to what I say. Like I I get to tell you what to do, but not anyone else, right? Like it's no, my weird... kids have opinion. They're they're allowed to share their perspective on the yeah. table, but the final decision is mine because of I course. am the mom and I pay the mortgage. Of course, yeah, exactly. Dordana, thank you so much for this conversation. I've learned so much. I feel like I've already grown. I I think this is the beginning of a very long and fruitful friendship. I hope that you'll come on the podcast again. I hope we can go for coffee and, you know, just have a conversation off off the record. Yeah, great. And I would like to share a quote with your audience before I finish. This is a book that I love uh, by Brené Brown, Dare to Lead. I don't know if you have a chance to read this book. I always have it beside my uh, bedside table. So what I want to read is that... um, is a quote from Peter Roosevelt. The quote is not long, but I'm gonna read it. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Get in the arena. Get in the arena. Like, that's what it's all about. Put yourself out there. Be vulnerable. Get in the arena. Yeah, I think that's the best place to leave it. Thank you, Dr. Dardana Islam. I mean, what more can we say? Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I had a great, great experience, Nolan, meeting you and talking to you. And hopefully we'll meet for coffee soon. Thank you again, Dardana, for the wonderful conversation. Um, I was truly inspired and can 
will try to continue to being vulnerable and having those different difficult conversations because um, I really do think it, it is a strengthening me and I thank you for your wisdom. Uh, I think these conversations are really important to have. So thank you very much for um, listening and thank you for having them with me. And thank uh, you for listening. I really feel like these days we have a lot of options for entertainment and whatever you might want to be listening to right now. So, you know, you could be spending your time doing a lot of different things. And I really appreciate that you're giving me your time listening to the conversations. And I hope you're enjoying the podcast. So thank you very much for listening. All music on this show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. The Cause and Effect is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation. To learn more about the foundation, visit wpgfdn.org or visit them at wpgfdn on all social media platforms. I'm at Nolan Bicknell on social media. You can follow me there. We'll see you next week for another episode of Because and Effect. Same time, same place, and remember, you never lose. You either win or you learn. Bye-bye.